The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. And sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudharman from The Homes Report in Davos, and I'm joined today by Jeannie Mullen, who's the Chief Marketing Officer with Mercer. Jeannie, thank you so much for coming. Very excited to be here. How's your Davos going so far? This is my first year, and I've been fantastic. Okay. I think starting out with the avalanche and the massive amounts of snow could not have been a better welcome. It wasn't anything that I really expected. Um, and then moving into the sunny, warmer weather and seeing all the people out has really been you know, so engaging and encouraging. I think we're seeing excitement build as yeah. it goes on. It seems like there's quite an optimistic mood this year. Um, I mean, this is, this, uh, I, this is not my first time. I'm always curious to talk to people who, who, who are coming for their first time to just get their kind of first impression of, it's a strange place, Davos. You know, there's a lot going on in, a, in an alpine skiing town. <laughs> That's absolutely true. And, you know, it, it's interesting. I've been speaking with people who have been here 16 years since the very beginning, five years, seven years. But I think collectively, including uh, Marsha McLennan, CEO Dan Glazier, he said the same thing that you just said. There's a sense of optimism this year. There, people seem to be much more focused on future opportunities and looking, you know, in a very positive way mm-hmm. at engaging and collaborating in conversations. So for me, as the newbie, I'm going to set this as the norm and have higher expectations for next year. Mm. Okay, excellent. So I wanted to talk to you specifically about some um, research that Mercer has done, specifically your Global Talent Trends Report. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I thought was, some of the findings there were really interesting as they pertain to employee, especially younger employee, expectations of their leaders. Yes. Uh, And that's a recurring theme this week, is this idea that um, younger employees in particular want their leaders to be more visible on issues Mm -hmm. and on political issues. And we've seen that in America, obviously, because of, I think... You know, the current president, current administration, Mm -hmm. we've seen CEOs actually coming out, taking a stance in a way they wouldn't have done um, a few years ago. I wondered if you could talk through a little bit, particularly from the employee perspective, why is this so important to employees that that their employers are taking a stance and how has this changed from, say, five, ten years ago? Yeah, it's such a great question about how this... You know, phenomenon with millennials in, in the workplace has almost reset expectations for what leaders should do. And it, it's really interesting. So I'm newer in my role as the Mercer CMO, but I've been a CMO for many organizations for a while. And coming into a B2B organization, when you're looking at building brand, in a consumer company, you have brand advocates and fans that love your product and, and can't live without it. In B2B, you really don't have mass amounts of, of people. Most of your clients are employers mm. and companies, and those are smaller volumes than, than the regular consumer. So when I came into this role, I looked at you know how do we make our employees the brand advocates? Mm. And that gets right into some of the findings from our 2017 Global Talent Trends Report, especially the generational elements around millennials, because with 22,000 employees at Mercer, 
what I started to see is there was an expectation for Julio Portolatin, our CEO, and all of us on the executive leadership team to step up and lead by example. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't just mean leading by example from a profitability and a growth standpoint. It means leading by example from an integrity and respect standpoint and establishing that foundation. And you know, Julio speaks about it. He refers to it with the CEO as a statesman. And I think that's very interesting because when you look at, you know, the fact in our research that 47% of millennials said that leaders who set a clear direction are critical factors to a positive work environment, I mean, it, it's as obvious as it can be that a, a leader today, a CEO, needs to understand that they're just not leading a workforce, they're leading a generation. And mm. I think that's pretty fantastic. Mm. Do you think it brings some risks, though, for the CEO? Because... Obviously, you don't want to get necessarily um, alienate, you know, politicians too much. You don't want to take too many risks with uh, with corporate reputation. How do you um, perhaps navigate that kind of risk versus reward yeah. equation here? It, it's a great question, and I think when you're looking at you know the CEOs, the statesmen, and as a leader, um, trying to engage the millennial generation and the generations to follow, um, you know it. It requires you to make some very thoughtful and strategic decisions. Now, at Mercer, being a you know human resources focused organization and doing a lot of work around um, the way that people save and invest their funds and the way that companies engage their employees for financial security, looking at their healthcare and, and health options, and then looking at career and mobility, we're on the forefront of those decisions every day. So mm -hmm. we see that. You know, a lot of the conversations come back to leaders establishing a sense of trust in everything that they do mm -hmm. and also committing to education and doing a lot of data analytics. Interesting, we just did some research with our One Woman Thrive initiative to look at gender equality in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And one of the big findings was every company needs to use data analytics to identify how engaged their employees are, where the opportunities are, whether, and that's true whether it's millennials or whether you're looking at gender diversity, to understand where does the CEO need to step in? Where does the leader have to establish expectations? Now, you know, as far as a leader commenting on the political environment or geopolitical trends, um, you know, you need to be able to have a voice, mm. um, but you need to be able to have a, a voice that is, is moderated, um, you know, with, with some level of, of just professionalism. Mm. And I think, you know, this, this past year we've seen so many natural disasters. Mm. And, and whether it was natural disasters or whether it was risks to our security, it was an opportunity for many CEOs to stand up and say, this isn't right. And even when you look at things like the Me Too movement, there's an expectation that CEOs will stand up and say, we acknowledge that there's something happening in the world that's not right, and we all need to get together and do something about it. It, it doesn't mean that our CEO or any CEO is standing up and personally identifying or calling out people or names or you know discussing political mm -hmm. viewpoints, but it does show that um, they're acknowledging that there are issues and opportunities for improvement. And then I think especially with the millennials and in the research that we've seen, with up to 50% of them looking to leave their job in the next year and looking for the next great leader, um, the leaders need to establish what our, our viewpoint and what our vantage point is so that they can build that trust with an employee to continue to engage them. Mm. It's interesting. So as a marketer yourself, as, as you've explained, part of your job is, is marketing 
the brand to your employees. Huge part of the job. And I think anyone in the B2B industry mm. um, has to realize that. And, and we came up with an acronym, AIR, Authenticity, Inspiration, and um, Realism and Responsibility, mm. you know, to, to talk to you how we engage our employees. And um, it, it's been really interesting, even at Davos. Um, before Davos, we said, you know, this is such a critical event for Julio and our entire leadership team to come out and engage with other CEOs, with country leaders, you know, with heads of state, and, and really talk about how can we get together to address the world's hottest topics and biggest trends and prepare for the future of work. To leave that conversation here in this town after the week is over and not share that with the employees seemed like it would be a big myth. We did like Mercer and, and um, ask for volunteers to be part of what we call the Davos Squad. Mm. Globally, if you wanted to be part of the conversation, we all we asked for was you committed a little bit of your time during this week to follow what was happening at Davos. Um, we committed as leaders to put out content through video, through audio, and, and a lot of a lot of tweets, um, and and to you know have our Davos squad actually take that message and amplify it to the rest of the employees as well as you know our clients and prospects who can't be here, and. It's been unbelievable. You know, mm. we've we've had an incredible share of voice. People keep asking me how many people I brought to Davos, and from a marketing standpoint, it's just me. Mm. Um, but but the message is out there, and it's so authentic mm. that you know we're putting their their spin on it, and we're learning a lot from that. You know, Julio, our CEO, is looking at the feedback, and he's saying, oh. When I talk about X, Y, Z, this is how it's being perceived by the employees and by our clients. This is how we need to change our message to maintain, you know, that that vision and the leadership. And I think it's great. It's mm. definitely, you know, a lot of new new avenues and new paths for for us at Mercer this year with Davos. But um, something that we'll continue to do throughout all of our key events. Mm. It's interesting because I can remember a time when internal communication was almost a backwater oh, yeah. of the of the yeah. communications department, right? Yeah. The the corporate newsletter, and it was not a place where people would go to build their careers necessarily, right? Mm -hmm. and now you hear CEOs saying they're the chief employee officer. You hear about employee engagement being like the the key pillar of culture, and you hear companies saying that their engagement starts with their employees. Yeah. What do you think hastened this this kind of turnaround? Yeah, you know, I, I think I think it was a new generation. Mm. You know, I, I have I have two daughters. They're nineteen and fifteen, and you know, when my nineteen year old is is on the very tail end of being a millennial, and, and certainly my fifteen year old is as far into being a, a Gen Z as you could possibly be. As as a parent, I'm shocked to see how the different set of values that they have around mm. social media, around trust, around brand authenticity, and while my millennial daughter still somewhat believes the news and, and understands mass media outlets, my 15-year-old, if it's not on YouTube, it didn't happen. Mm. And just a, a different perception in the way that the generations of, of workforces are, are really embracing leadership and, and looking for less of that you know, very polished, put-together corporate message, and they're looking more for authenticity where they can bring their whole self to work where they can feel like um, you know their message is it, it matters and where they feel like they can add to that message so you mm -hmm. do see a lot of internal communications leaders um, taking a much more active role in retention and engagement and certainly in recruiting especially as we see the shift towards future of work with needing different skill sets and organizations 
I think it's, it's fascinating to me. It's really interesting. And, um, gosh, maybe a few months into my role as CMO, we had um, somebody that was wearing a, a shirt that it just says, it says Mercer on the front of it. It's a biking shirt. And they started taking pictures, having fun. And so it, it started a conversation on our social networks on, oh, it's Saturday, I'm at the gym, I'm gardening, I'm doing this. And, and people were on our Mercer social networks talking about their personal life on the weekend and how they were enjoying life, mm. but they're all wearing this Mercer shirt. And it wasn't a marketing plan, it wasn't a ploy, okay. it wasn't yeah. a comms play, but we started to realize that there is this whole effort that we call, I mean, we have an Instagram, Life at Mercer, at this point in time, where we've moved everybody for this conversation because people... It, there is no more work-life balance. Mm. It's all integrated. And for the millennial generation, mm. you know, they want to be as proud about the place that they work and show it off in their daily life as, as they do with anything else in their personal life. And as we've seen that grow over the few months, I mean, we've seen people from all around the world saying, how do I get one of these shirts? I'm going on vacation and I need to have a shirt to wear to Hawaii. And I don't think that they've run out of clothes. I think that they're, they're so proud to be able to go out and talk about you know, who they are and what they represent. Similar to you know, all the startups in Silicon Valley where, where you wear the, the hoodie or, or the t-shirt. Um, it's, this new, it's this new initiative that millennials have really introduced to the workforce. It's changing everything. Mm. And you know that you, you sometimes hear about um, social media guidelines to ensure that that people aren't you know crossing any lines uh, mm-hmm. when when they're um, representing themselves as as an employee of a company or even even as not because mm-hmm. you can always be identified as an employee of a company and so much of this conversation we're talking about happens on digital channels. Is it realistic to expect these kinds of social media guidelines to be enforced, or um, do you just have to accept now that? <laughs> that kind of everyone's lives are out there. It, it, it's a great question. And I, I think um, in part you have to take a deep breath and accept that um, you, lo- you do lose control and um, look for the fact that, you know, even in our research, 60% of millennials were looking for an inclusive work culture. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have to understand that this isn't something that we're asking people to do. This is something that they're asking to be a part of. They value and trust the company as much as we value and trust them. So you, it, it's like having kids. You cross your fingers and and you, um, you know, share some guidelines. And as long as those guidelines are focused in a positive manner, um, success drives more success. And I can tell you, even at Mercer, we've had some. Um, very senior business leaders who have been a little nervous when we open up social to um, very, very specific conversation topics like, um, you know, some of the things happening around uh, gender equality or mm-hmm. workplace issues. Uh, but we, we see that our people treat it with as much respect as they do their own media channels. And mm-hmm. I, I think I think there's that sense of valuing what you say. Um, and especially as we get into the generation, the Gen Z, where everything is coming across digitally on YouTube, everything is a reality series. The unboxer is the is the most popular guy on the internet. Uh, you know, the the person that that's um, lip syncing the songs. You know, has more followers than than certain celebrities do. But um, when you get into that world, it, it's pride built on a, on an authentic message that's very positive and that's very focused on creating a vision. So I think between the millennials and the next generation, we are going to have the most powerful brand campaigns that we've ever seen for organizations coming Mm. to life. And they're not going to look anything like what we were used to with traditional branding. Right. Because, you know, traditional branding 
you could say starts with the TV ad or, or yeah. starts with a, a you know a conventional kind of marketing tack along those lines. But this is a very different approach to, mm-hmm. to in terms of how to market organizations. Absolutely, absolutely yeah. interesting. Um, now you, as you mentioned before, you have um, uh, an is- initiative called When When Women Thrive, mm-hmm. uh, which looks at gender inequality in the workplace, um, and of course that's a huge theme here in Davos this week, and in fact it's a it's a huge theme across the business world at large. What's your, I suppose, your key advice for employers that are looking to um, implement a more e- equal workplace culture? Sure. Yeah. We we love looking at this data and research and we'll have new research coming out in a few weeks. This is our fourth year presenting When Women Thrive at Davos and and this year was packed with standing room only but one of the things that stood out this year was the percentage of men who attended Mm -hmm. as opposed to the very first year. So in the very first year it was a small percentage of men, maybe a handful, who probably you know worked the room or the security. <laughs> um, this year we yeah. saw you know, up to forty percent of the people in the room being men, mm. and I think when we look at this initiative and you look at the research that the World Economic Forum put out saying it's two hundred and seventeen years to close this gap, um, it's scary. And yeah. I think this year there's been a big realization that this isn't a woman's issue and it's not a men's issue. That women, women and men need to come together collectively to solve this challenge mm-hmm. and I think for organizations that are looking to understand more about it and even wrap their arms around it the first thing they need to do is really do some deep analytics to understand what trends are um, in every level of their organization because you know our research shows that when you've got more women at an executive level that profits go up you know research from all of us and not just Mercer is showing that you know when you've got women in revenue producing roles you see differently higher margins it's it's the positive results are there the question for a lot of companies is where are you failing you know where is there an opportunity because the next step is it absolutely in this case needs to be a top-down you know the the leader the CEO the executive team needs to come in and say we understand that this is our challenge. Now, here are the changes we're going to make to do that. And, you know, it starts in every level of the company, but it starts from the leadership level saying, you know, okay, in this role, when a new opportunity opens up, we want to see the best candidates, but we want to make sure that we see both men and women, and from there we'll choose the best. And there's a tremendous amount of research and statistics out there that, that talk to gender bias and say, you know, if a resume showed up without a name, then you know you have a much higher percentage mm. of opportunity for women to be considered as as the better choice. Once the names are on there, it automatically shows that that men you know are receiving preferential treatment. So there's that there's that unconditional bias that mm-hmm. that all of us are apply are. are um, you know, open to experiencing whether we want to understand it or not, or want to embrace that reality or not. But I think, you know, when the leaders walk in and say, here's where we're having challenges, here's where we're going to start making changes, then you start to see that again, success drives more success. And when you start to see uh, women being given more opportunities, different opportunities, being supported, being mentored in different ways, then, um, you know, you start to see some of the positive results, which mm-hmm. inspires other people in the organization to make those changes. 
But I think the third level, you know, comes in with establishing trust and respect in the workplace. And there's a lot of opportunity for education and training and mentoring. You know, one of the facts that Pat Milligan, who runs our One Women Thrive initiative, brings up many times in relevant conversations is sometimes men just don't know how to interact with women in a professional setting. They are concerned about, you know, issues that that could arise. And um, I think it's Sheryl Sandberg that says, in reality, most networking and most mentoring doesn't happen in the workplace. So if you've got men who are afraid to be alone with a female because they're concerned that something will happen when in a traditional mentoring environment they're taking another man to lunch or they're having drinks with them or they're going to play golf, already right there you're creating a barrier and those barriers to be eliminated. So when we look at training opportunities inside the organization, it's a, it's a lot of um, you know understanding and respect. and. If you talk to any women who have been able to move through the corporate ladder and get to a very successful role, 90% of them will tell you that there's been men in their career who have supported, mentored, and enabled them to move to the next level. It's not just about you know women supporting women. It's about everybody supporting this broader effort and initiative. Mm, okay. Fascinating stuff. Jeannie, thank you so much for your you. time. Uh, And I hope you have a really good week here in Davos. Thank you. You as well. Thank you. (laughs) And I'm joined by Lord Michael Hastings, who is the Global Head of Citizenship at KPMG uh, and previously uh, spent several years as the BBC's first head of CSR as well. Uh, Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to see you again. Yes, great to see you too. Um, I interviewed you 12 months ago about a range of CSR issues, uh, and and that interview is is available on the Homes Report website. So I was looking forward to seeing you again uh, and getting your thoughts on the, I suppose, the sort of evolution of purpose, because it's a a word now that is in such demand across the corporate world. Um, Whenever I talk to heads of communications or or heads of sustainability, um, the first thing they start talking about is the importance of corporate purpose and of corporate values and of a business standing for more than just um, making a profit. How do you view that kind of evolution of, of the way companies view purpose? Well, here we are almost day one of the World Economic Forum in Davos and the defining strap line for the World Economic Forum is committed to improving the state of the world. So there is a clear purpose statement It wasn't there when the WEF was underway in the early 1970s, but it kind of emerged realistically about 15 years ago. And I think as the WEF has led the way in helping companies to position themselves with a defined statement of principles, which is separate to their values, the defined statement of principles, companies have followed suit. And then two other things happen. Every year at the beginning of Davos now, we get... Uh, as we've had for the last three years, Larry Fink, the chief executive of BlackRock, issues his letter to the companies. Mm. Essentially, it's a letter to every CEO in the world because, after all, if you're not invested in by BlackRock now, you're going to want to be mm. invested in. I mean, they're sitting on nearly $7 trillion of investable assets, so you're going to want BlackRock's money. At some- and he makes very clear 2018 that they're only going to invest in companies that have a strong sense of purpose, exceptional governance that understands that purpose and takes account of it genuinely, 
and companies that measure and deliver real impact on society. So I think it becomes a kind of, having gone from a goodwill WEF commitment into now, uh, you want the money, this is what you've got to do to get the money, which is not like a threat, but it's really saying, if a company doesn't have a purpose, after all, all it's going to do is, as it were, go to the bottom line. And the bottom line has long been discredited. The bottom line, which was just pay out the shareholder. You know, we've gone through the revolution of the B team, uh, Paul Polman, Richard Branson, uh, uh, Ariana Huffingham, a whole series of leading business figures working together, saying plan B is really all about the planet and people and profit. There's no denying the profit reality, motive, necessity. But purpose has moved us from being about the service a company provides or the product a company makes or the industry that a company is involved in into the impact a corporate organization has on the wider world in which it operates. Mm -hmm. And it started off being environmental and now it's moved into issue-led concerns and that issue-led focus seems happens to be the mood of the chief executive, the chairman, the board, uh, the entity of the organization, it doesn't have to be related to its core business. Uh, and I think it's a very healthy, progressive development. So although it may seem like purpose is a bit, the word thrown around randomly, it's actually landed quite well, quite hard. It's landed in the hardest of all markets, the United States, mm -hmm. where for companies to define purpose, live by purpose, and expect to be purposeful was sort of seen as a European thing. Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's a dominant number of American companies now which would state that up front and publicly. European companies has been consistent in their habits, but now it's pretty much a global expectation. Uh, and I think it's a healthy period of time where we're no longer saying, actually be embarrassed about having something that's beyond your function, your financially related bottom line accountable resource base EBITDA what what are you what are your accounts showing and what's your payout to the shareholder mm -hmm. that was that was sort of the bottom line now the bottom line is what are you for mm -hmm. who are you for who are you with in the for and what impact are you making beyond yourself that you're proud of and then you can think about the profit as well mm. did the black rock letter surprise you no, I was thrilled. It's been three years now. Mm. And, you know, Larry Fink started off by saying, year one, environment. Year two, inclusion and diversity. Year three now, purpose and impact on society. And if you read the detailed letter, which is available easily, you see that he's included environment heavily and sustainability and renewables. And, and you see that he's included... Inclusion and diversity and everything that fits under that map. And now we move a step on into purpose calling, identity, all of these things which actually are a continuum anyway. Mm -hmm. But I think for, for Larry Frank, what he was been saying is, look, let's, uh, let's go at this progressively. Because if he threw it all at us three years ago, threw it all at the hundreds of companies BlackRock invested in, maybe some of them would have said, hang on a minute, this is a bit too much. But a progressive step-by-step-by-step-by-step step step approach, which is getting us to this collective agreement that companies are actually active citizens in the real shape of the world.
That's maybe as a almost like an outcrop um, of that trend, we're seeing CEOs take a much more visible stance yes. on big issues, whether yeah. that's politics, whether it's inclusion, whether it's environmental issues. Um, from your perspective, how hard is it for CEOs to do that, given that for much of their history, the CEO role has often been to hide you know, beneath the parapet rather than take on a role where they can attract criticism? Well, CEOs are getting younger. Mm. That makes a big difference. Um, you know, maybe 20 years ago, we were used to the CEO always having a parting in their hair and gray hair um, and a blue suit. But they're getting younger. They're a little bit more flashy and progressive. And we are in a, we're in a period of time where innovation and the new products, the new internet-related services and products are as big as many, if not bigger than many traditional industries. So the nature of the CEO is changing. The business schools have changed. I mean, in every corner of the world, business schools now teach and embrace sustainability thinking, uh, shared value thinking, societal impact thinking, citizenship thinking. Uh, they embrace that as part of the curriculum of business effectiveness, high performance, uh, assuredness, to be authentic. One of the great courses run at Harvard, to be authentic, is to know how to embrace the complexity of the world and find solutions to it. Rather than to say, that's for government, that's for the agencies of the United Nations, that's for multilateral networks to deal with, that's for NGOs to deal with. No, now the business schools of the world say to business leaders of the world, this is down to you. You need to grab it, embrace it. So when you say, is it, is it difficult for CEOs to step up? The evidence certainly of the last year were many CEOs made deliberative choices on agenda issues that were maybe previously, a generation ago, seen way outside the scope of a business leader's responsibility. Very happy to step up on those. Happy to position, as many did in the case of the US as separate to the administration, to step away from the administration. To be bold enough to say that inclusion in society is something that matters to their business as much as it matters to the nation. Mm. Or the ability to embrace people with their differences matters as much to their business as it matters to the nation. Mm. And their willingness to want to pursue an agenda where there's a better acceptance of an equal pay prospect between men and women. Something would never have been discussed openly. That would always have been seen as private. Now it's seen as public conversation. Mm. So I think we're in a period of time where actually the confidence of CEOs to step out, step up, to embrace is probably at its peak. We've had iconic figures, probably most notably in Paul Polman from Unilever and of course Larry Fink from BlackRock and a number of others from major corporations. Mukhtar Kent, who was a Coca-Cola, another... Great example, Doug McMillan at Walmart. Many, many, many examples from, as it were, north, south, east, and west, mm. who have all laid the trail on which now the rest of business can follow. Mm. Instead of it being difficult, potentially embarrassing, awkward, legally challenged, it's kind of, why aren't you? Mm. And what do these trends, in your view, mean for the traditional, if you like, corporate social responsibility department? Because that's... You know, tr traditionally that's been where 
these are these notions of, of purpose and values have resided. Um, but now, of course, the whole company is devoted to this idea. Um, does that does that mean that these departments are less necessary these days? Um, they're not less necessary. They're just more strategic. Mm. Uh, in the same way that um, every business needs extremely good lawyers and effective compliance departments, but the duty falls on every employee to be compliant. So even though we have a compliant culture within a business organization, or whatever its construction is, we still have to have a department that has to have the focus of monitoring and pushing, persuading, checking, encouraging, facilitating. I definitely believe that CSR as an entity is a dead phenomenon. And I say that because uh, the traditional definition of CSR would be that uh, an organization, a company, an entity undertook some philanthropic and voluntary activities, which were proportionately low scale. They were not core to the organization or the business. They may exemplify the values or the interests of the leadership, but they were not core to the operation. And if the business was heading for the wall, they might be ditched. Mm. Now, by redefinition, for a business to set itself out as purposeful, to take full cognizance of its impact on society, to understand in its products, its services, its relationships, its networks, it really is a citizen builder. Mm. That means that everybody across the leadership to the next layer, to the middle layer, to the bottom layer, is involved in this mission. So do we still need a CSR department? Well, I would take the word out. I would mm -hmm. definitely take the S out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I would move it towards responsible business or citizenship or, or shared value. Move it towards a term which expresses the holistic nature of the way the business relates to the society beyond it. You'd want to believe that everybody at the peak of the corporation or everybody at the executive level or everybody in the operational management level so embraced this priority, they didn't have to look to a corporate responsibility department for permission to do something mm. or for a bright idea. They'd get on and do it themselves. Mm. And yes, it should involve volunteering and philanthropy. Which company would not want to have volunteering and philanthropy? It's very, very, very important. To be able to give resources away, the resource of time and the resource of cash, vital. But to be able to systemically change the construct of a community, a city, and a wider society, to get actively involved in literally planet-saving priorities, which again, 25 years ago, we were not having this conversation. Mm. We might have perceived that planet responsibility was really up to the NGOs. That was for the World Wildlife Fund. You know, that was for the, those who were taking on the ocean concerns. That was for the United Nations. Well, now it's actually every business is measuring its carbon impact. It's saying it wants to be deliberately, positively sustainable. It wants to reduce its energy. It wants to go to renewables. Everybody's on this thing about plastics at the moment. Mm. We all witness the ocean layers of plastic. We feel ashamed of it. We don't want it. We're getting rid of plastic bags all over the place. We're looking at more effective recycling. Companies who are distributing food are saying, let's package them less. This is a big shift. And if it was just down to a, 
CSR department to say, to flag the responsibility for the oceans, nothing would happen. It's got to be down to the executives, the board, the ownership of the business from the top to the bottom. And I think that trend is a great trend. But, like I said, with the compliance department, you still need the adjutant in the mix. Because mm -hmm. if you take the adjutant out of the mix, what if people become complacent? Mm -hmm. What if they become indifferent? What if a leadership happens and somebody misses the point? Mm -hmm. What if there's an opportunity and it's not spotted? It is necessary to keep the finger on the pulse. You know, we, we're heading towards 2030, the Sustainable Development Goals. We've got 12 years left to achieve prominent ambitions you can lay before the planet, which is to end extreme poverty and hunger and to bring greater justice to those living in extreme need. That is a task if we don't achieve it in 12 years. The sense of shame between governments, individuals and corporations will be immense. We need to keep our foot on the gas on this one, literally go at top speed to make sure, using sustainable and renewable energy in the vehicle, by the way, <laughs> to make sure we achieve this objective and we achieve it with dedication and determination. So we need people inside the business, irritating away at the chief executive, irritating away at the board, mm -hmm. pushing away at priorities, getting a focus for resources, galvanizing money more effectively, and making sure that we're all transparent about it. And with that in mind, what should these people who, who have their finger on the pulse, what should they be saying about these huge tax breaks in the US? Um, it's the biggest lowering of the corporate tax rate, I think, ever. Um, and how should businesses that are, that are looking to be responsible citizens, um, how should they be handling this, uh, this windfall in a way that makes them responsible citizens? I think there's a challenge in that it's an opportunity mm -hmm. because the official tax rate may go down. That is for law and legislation to decide. Mm -hmm. And companies have the right to lobby either way. But if a company feels that the tax rate reduction is inappropriate, uh, that the tax money given is necessary for the provision of public services and infrastructure and the stability of government at local or national level, they can voluntarily pay the money. Mm. Now, they may not want to pay the money into an exchequer where it disappears, but they have the right to make and to build a foundation. And I do think that the, the opportunity means that if you want to be compliant to the law, be compliant to the law, quite rightly so. But don't make an issue out of it if you're not prepared to give the differential from where you were before. Mm. Make up the gap through a foundation investment. Ensure that that foundation investment resource is targeted at the public services you know that are struggling. And it might be healthcare, it might be care of the elderly, it might be mental health resources. Whatever it happens to be, put that money where it's going to matter most. That's the impact on society imperative. That's what it means to be purposeful. So I do think there is, a, yes, the right and the need for corporate leaders to have a firm view as to how they feel tax policy is going. We're in favor of responsible tax in every jurisdiction, meaning fair payment and legal payment. But we're also in favor of companies making quite independent, quite objective and quite determined and deliberative payments through foundations that facilitate the public concerns they feel. Okay. How do you feel when you see companies that 
win a lot of awards, let's say, for their purpose-driven campaigns. Um, I'll take an example like State Street Global Advisors. Uh, Fearless Girl wins a number of awards last year for, for, its, for its campaign, the, the, the statue of a girl in front of the iconic uh, bull on Wall Street. And then it emerges that State Street is actually uh, under investigation for disparity and equal pay at the company. And I think it actually turned out that it, it paid a fine. Um, do you think there's a disconnect at all? I don't, I don't want to focus on State Street specifically, but in general, do you think there's a disconnect between these campaigns that, that, are, that do good, or at least are seen to do good, and win a lot of awards, and companies that actually are committed to doing good? Well, companies are complicated places, and the best will and best intentions of the leadership and the corporation are to embrace the equalities and the values that they aspire to. I have no question and no doubt about that. And then you discover something lurking in the midst, and you go, oh, okay, you fix it. You fix it. And I don't feel we should be punishing companies who admit to identifying a flaw at the center of their case. We should be grateful for their willingness to embrace the flaw mm -hmm. and change, whether they pay a fine or they don't pay a fine. But here is an opportunity to step up in every single case. And you know, the remarkable thing about today's corporate world is it's pretty transparent. You know, mm -hmm. Track back again a generation. How could you find anything out? You waited for the printed annual report. And if you got it, you poured over it and you tried to look for the flaws in the argument or the holes in the accounts. Now you can discover something every single day. That means it's a positive opportunity for the leadership of companies to admit to vulnerabilities, to embrace the challenge of them and do right. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's embarrassing. I think that is a positive, non-cynical, effective way to put your values and your commitments right up front, deal with them right up front. And I'm grateful to see that that is the culture and the mood of corporate business life now. Mm. One of the key themes in Davos, as always, is uh, progress on diversity and inclusion. Mm. Uh, and you've spoken before about the challenges in terms of measuring diversity. I wondered if you could talk us through what you see the challenges are and how you feel they should be addressed. I think the um, perspective I expressed before is that, that the old paradigm of measuring diversity by, as it were, counting the numbers of women, counting the numbers of minorities from different ethnic cultures, counting the number of people who are disabled, counting the number of people with an LGBT-identified lifestyle, counting people who are from one faith or another faith, and then looking at it proportionally and working out, oh, what do we do to balance the books, as it were, um, which is a metrics approach. And metrics are incredibly important. They're very helpful ways for us to identify whether particular sections of a company's workforce are being diminished, discriminated against, or simply not respected or valued appropriately enough. That is um, to report the data. Changing a culture is a different thing altogether. I start with the point of view that, that uh, 
it is necessary to have a diverse mindset as well as to have diversity of presence. You could have a room of all men who can think holistically about the challenges faced by people who are disabled and are women. Will they think as effectively as if there were some women in the room? No, of course not. But that doesn't stop women being able to understand men's prioritization, needs, interests, and challenges, vulnerabilities, weaknesses, follies, uh, and thoughts, nor does it stop men being able to do the same likewise. We do live in a much more open and equal world. We're able to analyze and, and read and reflect much more than we were before about what difference means and to understand and to embrace other people's pressure points. So is, diversity isn't just about clocking the numbers. Because if it were just about clocking the numbers, people would feel we'd kind of fix this and really fix this, almost realistically by now. It isn't about clocking the numbers. It is about, first of all, having an inclusive mindset. Do I want to be comfortable with and to embrace people who are different to me? Do I want to understand people who, for example, just pick the faith dimension. I'm a very strong, committed follower of Jesus. But I love to understand people from different faith cultures. I have no issue with that, no tension with that. I visited temples and mosques. I'm very happy understanding and embracing other religious cultures or other faith cultures. I don't have to become another faith in order to achieve that understanding. But the best wisdom will come from a good relationship with somebody who is of a different faith to me. They can teach me, they can explain to me, they can help me to walk something of their journey. That's a benefit for me. But I've got to start with the willingness to want to know. I've got to start with the desire to embrace, to receive and to accept. And that's what I'm more interested in, is a mindset approach first, and then a metrics approach that supports the transformation. Mm. Okay. And as if on cue, they brought us cake. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure, as always, to talk to you. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk to you and for your extremely pointed and erudite questions. Thank you. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people. <laughs>